Amen. Turn please to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, you have an outline there. And you might have noticed that uh, we're going over a lot of the same territory that we went over last week. Uh, Some will be reviewed, but uh, most of it are just things that uh, I felt really needed to be emphasized in a different way. And um, I love the book of Philippians. I love Philippians chapter 4. And maybe I'm just trying to make it so it doesn't go away. I don't know. (laughs) Because we'll soon be done with chapter 4. But I'm going to stretch it out a little bit more because there's so many good things that we can learn from this. And uh, you might notice we're going to be in verses 4 through 9 today. Although I really know that we're not going to deal with verse 8 very well. We'll, we'll deal with it somewhat superficially because next week I plan to, to do an in-depth word study on, on these um, truths that are found in, in verse number 8. So we will deal with them but we'll deal with them more in depth and compare Scripture with Scripture next week if God so wills and gives us the ability to do so. So, as we start here today, just by way of review, look at verse 1 again. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. And uh, that's very, very uh, true language that Paul uses. He's not a flatterer. He loved them. He cared for them. He wanted to see the best for them. Verses 2 and 3, he addresses a problem. A problem that we don't really know anything about except for the names of two ladies who were central in this problem. We assume that it's not a doctrinal problem. If it was a doctrinal problem, Paul would deal with it and say who's right and who's wrong, or they're both wrong. Okay, He would do that. But instead, it looks like an interpersonal dispute That never happens in a church, does it? No, it's very practical. It happens. We need to have a lot of Christian grace that we'll be talking about so it doesn't happen to us. But uh, here it says, I implore Yodia and I implore Sintinchi to be of the same mind in the Lord, and I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So these are godly ladies, and that's high praise to list them in as as helpers with Paul and and labored together in the gospel with Clement also. That's high praise, but there was the beginning of a problem that could actually hurt the church tremendously and obviously hurt them. So Paul takes it upon himself uh, to address this serious issue which they knew what it was, but we don't. And that's actually a good thing, because now we can apply it to many, many different situations, whatever they happen to be. When you make an application that is too pointed and direct many times, it's easy to just fly over the head of everyone else, because they say, well, whew, that one didn't apply to me. You know. So anytime there's an interpersonal problem, this is good verses to look at there. When it's interpersonal problems between two godly people. Well, now Paul gives us some helpful directives to guard our hearts and minds. You know, um, anxiety. We're talking about anxiety again. We talked about anxiety last week. We now come to five directives to fight anxiety. And I just felt it was an important message for us to, to look at one more time with five directives to fight anxiety. 
I think of the, the COVID situation that just will not go away causes so much anxiety, you know, and then the lockdowns that we had, which I pray we never have again, you know, the lockdowns that we had have just disrupted life tremendously and caused some people to go very inward and not be able to, to deal well with situations. And, and I would pray that that would just not be our case. Or if you find yourself in anxiety because of that, or a thousand other things, let's face it. There's so many things we can be anxious about. You know. Well, five directives to fight against anxiety. Look at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Now that looks familiar. I think we, we heard that at the 10 o'clock hour there. So thank you for that, Caleb. Well done. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, it's about the 34th time he said finally. <laughs> Well, that's okay. That, that's what preachers do, right? <laughs> Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. By the way, I think you know, I was just joking there a little bit. Finally, as it's being used by the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians, it's just a way for him to kind of switch gears a little bit. And to, to go to a, a different subject. Some of us go, uh, you know, <laughs> when we to go something else. Say, or to have some other filler word that we might use. Well, Paul isn't using filler words, but he's letting us know that there's a little bit of break here. Going to something different. And then he says, the things which you've learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. Five directives to fight anxiety. And I thought it would just be worth bringing them up to you this morning. First of all, focus on the Lord. Focus on the Lord. And that's what this passage does. Verses 4, 5, 6, 7, and 9 are focusing on the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. The Lord is at hand. Let your requests be made known to God. The peace of God which will come through Jesus Christ, and then the peace of God will be with you. And so here in just um, this short passage, we have a very Christological focus and a very much a focus on God himself. And it all points to one thing when you boil it down, that God is with us, but we still feel anxiety sometimes. We still you know, it plagues us and it troubles us. Anxiety can be a normal human response. Anxiety can actually be a good thing, as we said last week. It can be helpful if it energizes us to take proper action, but it can be like cancer if we let our minds feed upon it and dwell upon it, you know, we need to remember, we belong to God. He's for us. And anxiety, well, we feel it sometimes. And we need to pay attention to it 
when we do, then we need to deal with it properly. You know, um, just some examples, you know. It's built into us in a fallen world. Uh, we've got the adrenaline that kicks in when we have to fight or flee, you know. And so that's, that comes from a root of anxiety there, that burst of adrenaline that will help us to do what we need to do. And um, anxiety can also help us avoid dangerous situations. Imagine you're a lady and it's, you've been outside and, and now it's dark and you're trying to walk home and you've got a shortcut that you can walk through to a, an alley, you know, that'll take you home quicker or you can stay on the lighted street, you know, and then get home that way. Uh, anxiety, I would hope you would be anxious about going down that dark alley where there may be absolutely nothing and everything would be just fine. And you could probably do that a hundred times and get away with it. But what about time 101? See, there should be anxiety. There should be anxiety for something like that. There should be a healthy fear that avoids danger. But you know and I know that that's not where most of our anxieties happen to be. Um, Anxiety usually comes from our thoughts and from dwelling on situations. You know, well... God's for us, and we can look to him in every situation. And that doesn't mean every situation can turn out the way we want it to be. It doesn't mean that every situation is going to be a happy situation. But we have to believe that God is for us. And one of the ways we do that is through the regular means of grace, exercising the means of grace. Regular church attendance. We have three services on Sunday, one on Wednesday. And we do that for you to the glory of God And it helps us put our focus on the triune God. You know, daily Bible reading ought to be part of your regular plan. And if you miss a day, guess what you do? You read the next day. Okay, that's regular Bible reading. It keeps the Word of God in our minds, keeps God in focus in our minds. And of course, prayer. There should never be a day when we're not in communion with our Lord and speaking to Him, as it says in verse number 6. To be anxious for nothing but with everything, by everything, by prayer. So, those are the things. And then, of course, rejoice in the Lord, verse 4. We dealt with that last week, heard it at the 10 o'clock hour. It just shows we're not living our lives under the circumstances, but really do believe and trust that God is in control. And it doesn't always show itself, you know. It, just because someone looks really happy, there are a lot of people that are happy. And look relatively happy at certain times. It doesn't mean they're rejoicing. It certainly doesn't mean they're rejoicing in the Lord. This is joy even in the face of adversity, which is hard. But there is that classic passage, I put it on your outline there, from the book of Habakkuk. That's in chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. Because this is rejoicing in the face of adversity. And you'd have to read the whole context to, to get the full meaning, but um, this is very poetic, very beautiful. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I'll joy in the God of my salvation. So it doesn't always mean that things are going the way you want it to go. Doesn't always mean that you're happy. You know, rejoice doesn't mean that 
You don't feel and experience pain and loss when it comes. And it certainly isn't like that rather unpopular song now that used to be popular. Don't worry, be happy, you know. It may have a nice beat to it and everything like that, but that, that's not what rejoicing in the Lord is. It isn't just forgetting your trouble. I mean, that's what people say anyway. Um, I'll give a song that predates me. Pack up your troubles in your old kit bag and smile, smile, smile. There you go. Huh? How many of you know that song? You know, <laughs> I've heard it before. Well, that's not what it is. It's being real with the Lord and trusting in the Lord. And it's resisting the temptation to focus on what is visible, even if it's something pleasurable. It's resisting the temptation to focus on what is visible, be it pleasurable or problems, and to focus on Christ and believe that by His grace and mercy, He really is all that we need. Ah. Now, that's profound. He really is all we need. Paul believed that. That's why he could write Philippians from a jail cell. Because he believed that. Verse 5, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Uh, Your Bible may say, let your graciousness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. There's a, a lot of different ways to put that. But it's an idea that appears over and over again in Scripture. It's a great word in the Greek. It's one that's almost impossible to to translate with just one English word because there's so much to it. And let your gentleness be known. It has nothing to do with being with men being effeminate. It's nothing to do with that. And Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. It has something to do with that, you know. And the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, turn to Matthew 11. Keep your finger here. Turn to Matthew 11. And this is what the Lord Jesus Christ had to say about himself. Matthew chapter 11. We'll start reading in in verse um, 27. Matthew 11, 27. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Then notice what he says. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So the Lord Jesus Christ described himself as gentle in this way. Of course, different translations do read differently, but the idea is always going to be there. Uh, Meek is one of the words that some translations use, and then there's others too. Well, as you go back to Philippians, and as you look on your outline, there's a number of scriptures that I've put there for you that have this same idea. We put it all together, gives us a good picture of what this is. Let your gentleness be known to all people. Titus 3.2 to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Humility is always going to be a part of this, you know. And if we allow ourselves to be proud, God resists the proud, but shows grace to the humble. 
2 Corinthians 10.1, Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. 1 Timothy 3.3, we see it's a qualification for an elder. I didn't put this on your outline, because I didn't want to put him in with the Bible. But Aristotle had something interesting to say about this. He said the word meant a willingness to forgo one's own rights according to the letter of the law. Okay. That was his opinion of that particular word. And then Philippians 2.4. The word isn't in Philippians 2.4, but the idea certainly is, let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And then he goes on, let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus. You know. So that gives us a good picture of gentleness or reasonableness or graciousness. Those are also acceptable translations of the word. And Dr. Dennis Johnson, Dennis Johnson, who writes a number of commentaries, does a very good job, says the term refers to a nonviolent, even generous response to the aggression of others. Let's face it, when somebody's aggressive with us, uh, we want to be aggressive back. But you know, to be a peacemaker, sometimes you can disarm the situation. Sometimes you can bring the situation down. You can make it so it's not an escalating confrontation. You know, Confrontations are necessary. There's times they have to be. But uh, you know, when we can be a peacemaker, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And may the Lord help us that. I mean, you don't want to escalate a situation. Somebody says something bad to you, you escalate it and punch them in the mouth, right? That would be... Okay, I think you know that's unacceptable. <laughs> okay, like that. We won't go any further with that. Okay, we'll let that go. Okay, why let your gentleness be known to all men? Why? The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. Well, what does that mean? Well, in the context of, of Philippians three twenty and 21, it means the Lord will be coming soon. The Lord is near. And that is true. It was true then. It's still true today. But I've got a feeling that this, that context is a little bit removed. And when he says that the Lord is at hand, I would look more at the context of verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4. With the church problem of Yodia and Sententi, to be of the same mind in the Lord, Because when God's people assemble together and commit themselves to a body of Christ, who's in the midst of us? What does the book of Revelation say? Is in the midst of the churches. The Lord Jesus Christ himself is near. He's among us. Okay, And he knows what we do. He knows what we think. And as we assemble together and as we work together, and if we strive together, as we pray together, as we work together, the Lord is near to us. As we listen to the Word of God together, the Lord is near to us. And and through His Holy Spirit, He moves and He works in hearts and lives. And you say, well, I, I don't know that He's working in my heart or life, you know. Well, pray that He would. Listen, pay attention and pray that He would. It's the Word of God. And so he's promised to bless by his word. 
The Lord is near to us. We must not think of him as afar off. We must not think of him as way up there. You know? He's near to us. And you can prove it, and you believe it. I know you do. I can prove that you believe it because you pray. And he's near enough to hear. And he's the one that has brought that within you to desire to pray to him. You know this. It's a truth. The Lord is near to us. Psalm 34 says, The Lord is near to those that have a broken heart and save such that have a contrite spirit. Psalm 145.18 says, The Lord is near to all who call upon him, who call upon him in truth. And it's got to be in truth. It's got to be in truth. Why? Because the Lord hates lies. Okay? So the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. Verse 6, I really won't um, say a whole lot about verse 6, because that's where we camped last week. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Prayer and everything. Supplication, which we said was a lot like begging. It can be a lot like begging. But let's remember, as we go before God and, and we're asking him, put ourselves in the human situation, the illustration's given, of going to your father, your child, and you go to your father and you ask for bread. And what does he probably give you? If he's a decent and a good father and able to do it, he'll give you bread. Right? Okay. Or you go to him and you ask him for, you know, a fish. Now, I would never do that, <laughs> but I don't like fish either. But okay, ask him for a steak. And maybe you get, maybe you get a hamburger, but that's close enough. Okay. So you go to your father, you ask him, and he doesn't give you a snake, right? Steak and snake sound a lot alike, but, you know, okay. No. Okay, what, that's what, you know what I'm driving at. That's what Jesus said, right? Jesus is the one that said, your father cares about you, and you go to him, and you ask him, and he's going to give you good gifts, he says, your evil fathers, and let's face it, all of us know that our fathers are evil. You evil fathers know how to give good gifts. How much more will the Lord give good gifts to those that ask him? So let your requests be made known to God, you know. And then follow the teaching and practice of Paul, the example of a godly man. That's the fifth point. So you, we now have hit all Five points here. Follow the teaching and practice of Paul, the example of a godly man. We see it in verse number seven. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. But let's link it with verse number nine. The things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. Okay. So here is a teacher, here is a preacher, here's an apostle that can actually say to his beloved ones, I taught you, you learned from me, you received from me, you, you heard apostolic teaching, and it was apostolic teaching, and we have apostolic teaching. How many times do I need to say it until we all can recite it by heart that we have apostolic teaching right here? Okay, that uh, the Word of God is the Word of God. And it was given to us through prophets 
and apostles and men of God who spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So what you've learned, what you received, what you heard, the things that are contained in the Word of God, the things that so often go against your own grain, but really go against the grain of society. There are entire societies that have done everything they can to wipe the Word of God or any semblance of Christianity out of them. They've done everything they can to wipe it out. And we see it even in our own nation. You know, abortion becomes right and a right. That's not according to the Word of God. Sexual deviation is praised and considered great and wonderful. Some people, some persons, individuals, manage to somehow wipe out from their mind and conscience and heart the ingrained principles that are put in them because they're made in the image of God. And what do we call them when they do that? Call them reprobate. Romans 1. And they work hard towards that, you know. And you have to work hard to do that. But you know, the moral rules of society can change at the drop of a hat. They're changeable. So changeable. I'll give you an illustration of it. Um, You might have forgotten this. But let me bring it to your memory. Uh, It was in 2008 that there was an initiative put before the voters of the state of California whether to, to ban same-sex marriage. Okay. It, that was 2008. And guess what? It passed. It passed with 55% of the vote. If I remember, maybe it was 53%, but it was more than a 5% um, per, uh, percentage. It was pretty overwhelming. Okay. Now you think about that for a moment. That's 14 years ago. In 14 years, we've gone from California voting against same-sex marriage to today where we are. Today, in 2022, if polls can be believed, and, and you know as well as I do that they're not always accurate, but um, I haven't seen any polls for California But the latest poll I saw that I was looking up was 71% of Americans believe that there should be same-sex marriage. Well, you know, society has changed in less than a generation, you know. But when the passing philosophies of the world have gone or changed, God's word is still standing. The word of God lasts forever, you know. Uh, we had an allusion to Psalm 119 earlier today. In my devotions this week, I read Psalm 119. There's 176 verses in Psalm 119. Uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful poetic passage. And every one of those verses, we, we put them into verse form. But every one of those uh, have to do with the word of God. In some way or other. Sometimes called statutes. Sometimes called testimonies. Sometimes called the word. You know. Psalm 119. It's a great, great passage there. What does Paul say? 
What you learned, what you received, what you heard. But he doesn't stop there. He's even able to say, what you saw in me. That's pretty courageous. Okay. That's pretty courageous. But that's the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be living examples. What you saw in me, that's what you need to do. Now, what do they see in Paul? Well, right now they see a guy that they don't see him because he's far away. They see his letter. He's in prison. But what did they see? They saw a man who practiced what he preached. They saw a man who had been an educated, self-righteous sinner working to please God and thinking that he was pleasing God by the things that he was doing. He trusted in his own righteousness, but... And even though it's not in the book of Philippians, I'm very, very positive that the Apostle Paul gave his testimony to the Philippians, the testimony he gives at least three times in the book of Acts and alludes to in other places, where he had an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, who met him on the Damascus Road and changed his life forever. But you know what? From that Damascus Road encounter, he was blinded. That wasn't so joyful. That wasn't so. He had to be led by the hand to the place where he was going to go, but he was led by the hand to the place he was going to go. He was obedient, did not disobey the heavenly vision, and the Lord cured his blindness. The scales fell off. He could see. And now he really could see spiritually and physically. Well, there you go. You know, there were hundreds of Pharisees whose names are unknown. And had the Lord not reached down and picked out that brand from the burning, Saul would be one of them. One of those guys that we've never, ever heard from. But instead, he's a chosen vessel, an apostle, a writer of scripture. And uh, we go over his words almost without fail uh, every Sunday in one way or another, you know, so. Well, this is the kind of thing that God does. And the kind of thing that maybe not so dramatically in your life or not so dramatically in my life, but still the change that takes place in the hearts and minds of men and women when they come to the Lord Jesus Christ. So, you want the peace of God? It only comes from the God of peace. In verse number nine. And it comes by doing, living according to the truths of God's word. Now a quick, and this will be quick, needs to be quick. But we're going to deal with it in depth next week. <clears throat> Think on these things. I don't know how many times somebody said, what do I do, Pastor, in a, a counseling situation? What, what's, what? And I said, let me write you out a prescription. And so I read out Philippians 4.8, you know. And that's not just cute. It's real. It really is what we're supposed to do. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. This is how to be mentally healthy. To be thinking about these things. 
We can think about our problems all day long, and you can't ignore your problems. You have to deal with them. But you can spend all of your time thinking about your problems and thinking about your problems and thinking about your problems. And I've done it, so I know what it's like to do that. And you just go down a hole, you know? You sink. We need to train our thoughts properly. So what do you spend your time thinking about? What do you meditate upon? You know, a question was asked this week, and it was an interesting question. Um, you know, and some of you know because you're you're probably in the thread that I was talking about. They're asking, uh, which, which was the first sin? Well, we, our catechism just told us what the first sin was. But as you look at the scripture, Genesis 3, 6, you notice it's kind of interesting after uh, the serpent, after Satan tempts the woman... She sees the tree in a way she'd never seen before. She knew the tree was there. She said, I can't eat it. I don't even want, I can't even touch it, lest I die. You know? But she looked and said, that's a pretty nice tree. That fruit looks pretty good. And it's a tree that really is desirable to make one wise. That's what she was just told, too. So she took it. Now, what am I trying to say? What I'm trying to say is this. When, when people, of course, she was innocent as far as sin goes until her eyes were opened and her husband's eyes were opened. But th- this is really a, another picture in a different way. We're depraved creatures. We're, we're creatures that, um, you know, uh, really um, are easily led and swayed into sin because sin dwells within us and it, and it's easy to come out. But I'll tell you, you watch someone that's fallen into sin. Okay, you respected them and you appreciated them. And next thing you know, they did something that you never would have expected them to do. And I can guarantee you that didn't happen in a moment. Okay. They thought about it. Maybe no one knew they were thinking about this particular sin, but they thought about it. And they contemplated it. And somewhere along the way, for whatever reason, they decided to make the decision or decisions that landed them where they happened to be. And that's true for just about everybody, Christian or non-Christian alike. You know, we need to be so cautious of how we think. Because we think, we dwell, we contemplate, and the next thing we know, we're in a place that we never thought we would be. And maybe they want us to surprise in a place that no one else expected us to ever be. So we head it off at the pass and we guard it at the beginning. Martin Luther said, I, talking about uh, sexual sin, he said, I can't keep the birds from flying around my head, but I can keep them from making a nest in my hair. Okay. And you can. Yeah, you can. You know. There's a process, is what I'm trying to say. And likewise, the reverse is true. Godly living is not an accident. It's intentional. And it's not an activity in which we're wholly passive. We are not wholly passive. The Holy Spirit prompts us to action. God gives the means of grace to support us. And God helps us as we go to him in prayer. So next week, we're going to do a word study on these six words that I'm going to give you right now. I'll just go over them very, very quickly 
doesn't matter what your circumstances are. There are six things that should occupy a Christian's thoughts. They're concrete things. They're not abstractions. The things that are true, the things that correspond to God's nature, moral truths, universal truths that flow from the God of truth himself. And, and I think it will help us to see the opposite. The opposite would be lies and deceptions. And the world is full of them. And it's all around us all the time. The things that are noble or the things that are honorable. The idea is the things or the people that are worthy of respect. It's even a sense of reverence here. And the opposite is the sneering, cynical, whining that we hear over and over again. It infects the workplace. It affects politics. It's disrespect for authorities. It's disrespect for man that's made in the image of God. And if you have no reference for God, eventually you'll have no respect for humanity, which is made in God's image. The things that are just. A sense of what is just and right in God's sight. And this isn't justification. That, that's not the idea here, which is very, very true. It's not our legal standing before God, although that would be a great thing to meditate on and think about. Paul isn't making an exhaustive list here of everything to think about and meditate on. This is just. What is just and what is right? You know, and it's very much akin to what is true. You know, this is true equity that conforms to Christian standards. And what we see today being called equity is anything but equity. You know, and the world just really can't do equity very well. You know, mistreats people, treats them bad, you know, and then it all flips around, you know. I like to use the illustration of, of um, labor unions. Labor unions are, to me, an example of this, you know. Uh, the employers are just treating their employees uh, like trash and dirt and misusing them and, and uh, long hours without uh, any kind of uh, recompense and pay and such like that. And next thing you know, the labor union, way back when, movement started to, to get rid of some of these injustices and get rid of some of these problems. And then what happened? The labor unions become the problem. They become the issue. And uh, all kinds of situations happen there. And then it swings back the other way. That's all the world can do. Well, the world tries for true equity and it ends up with a teeter-totter that goes back and forth, back and forth. But this is justice according to God's standards. Think about things that are pure. Things which don't stain the conscience. Things you wouldn't be ashamed of if someone could see what you were thinking about. The opposite, of course, impurity. Our culture is inundated with impurity. The internet hasn't made things any better. And it would be quite disheartening uh, to be on the front lawn of my house when the junior high lets out and hear the kids talking to each other. You know, with practically every fourth or fifth word being a swear word of some sort. Well, where do they get that from? Where do they get that impure language from? Well, they get it from TV, of course. And they get it from the music they listen to, of course. And they get it from the movies they watch, of course. And guess what? They probably get it from mom and dad, too. Okay? So that's where it comes from. 
you know. And we need to guard our hearts and minds for that. You can't keep from hearing impure language. Okay, It's everywhere and all around you. Is that what you're going to dwell on? Is that what you're going to think on? Is that what you're going to spend your time obsessing on? The things that are lovely. Things that attract admiration. Even the things that are worthy of love. We're going to find some deep meaning in some of these words. Interestingly enough, some of these words, as we'll point out next week, really only show up one time in the entire Bible. Sometimes they show up one time by Paul. Sometimes they show up one time in the entire Bible. And so we have to go to, to um, later Greek references to get a good idea of what the word means. But something that is lovely, the opposite of what is ugly and grotesque. And I think a man dressing up like a woman is grotesque and ugly. Good report. Commendable. Things that are pleasing. It has to do with reputations. You know, the opposite of a bad report. What are bad reports? Gossip, slander, evil speaking, these sorts of things. Now, there's really a lot of overlap between these six things, and they're supposed to be. So we'll deal with them one by one, and we'll show the overlap next week by God's grace. But there are aspects of the things we're to think upon, and then he changes form and gives us two if-anything. So did you notice that? If there's any virtue, and if there's anything praiseworthy. And this virtue is the normal word for moral excellence, you know. Uh, it's basically a word that would have been used by the heathen of that day. I don't mean heathen in an, in an insulting way. I mean the non-Christians, the culture of the day. You know, the normal word for moral excellence. And the Greeks spent a lot of time talking about moral excellence and what was right and what was wrong and such like that. And I think what Paul's really saying here is whatever culture you happen to be in, that culture recognizes certain things as right and wrong. So you can meditate on the things that are virtuous in the culture. And there are virtuous things in almost every culture. A culture that has nothing virtuous or praiseworthy in it is a culture that's just about ready to be destroyed. And it won't be around much longer. But you can think on those things. Of course, the Bible being your guide to tell you what is good and what is right. But almost every culture has within it virtuous things, and things that are praiseworthy. And so we really have an all-inclusive list of things to think about. God is a moral law, binding all men. Men are made in the image of God. So remnants of that moral law and principles of Christianity are going to shine through, one way or another. And often these moral truths are skewed, almost always skewed and twisted, and they can be eventually warped beyond all recognition. But, you know, if there's a functioning human society, you'll notice there's some truths that are binding that society together that allows them to function. Now let's suppose we did what it says in verse 8 perfectly. We mastered verses 4 through 7, 
and then we perfectly obeyed verse 8, what would that be like? That'd be like heaven, right? Yeah, it would be. It would be like heaven. And we can have a little bit of heaven on earth by thinking on these things. And as I said, verse 9, Paul uses himself as an example. He obviously uh, was a great practitioner in what we're talking about. He uses himself as an example that way and takes us back to the God of peace will be with you. Amen. Well, let me close with one thing. How can you have the peace of God? How can you have the peace of God? And you have to know and bow before the God of peace to have the peace of God. I've spoken almost exclusively to Christians today. I know most of you are Christians, and the text is directed to Christians. But if you're here without Christ as your Savior, all you can do is positive thinking. And you know what positive thinking will get you? Not much. <laughs> Won't even buy you a cup of coffee at Starbucks. Well, you know. Positive thinking is better than negative thinking. Give you that. But, you know, uh, you, you see it sometimes when, when um, maybe you're on the Internet and somebody's t- talking about a problem that they're having. And somebody says, well, I'll pray for you. That's good. And I hope that you do if you tell somebody you're going to pray for them. I hope you do. Others say, well, I'm sending good thoughts your way. Okay, thank you. <laughs> you know, the, but that's all that the lost can do. They send you good thoughts. Well, that's not going to do you much, like I said. I'd rather somebody gave me good thoughts than terrible thoughts. But, you know, I want someone to pray for me when I'm going through difficulty and I'm going through problems. Friend, and until you know the God of peace personally through Jesus Christ, you can never have the peace of God because you're at war with God. And you know what's worse than that? God's at war with you. He is. If you're outside of Christ, God's at war with you. So won't you put down your carnal weapons and come to Christ? Because there is forgiveness to be found in Jesus Christ the Lord. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, we thank you for the word of God which is practical and helpful. And we have to drive our minds back to it so many times. Because our minds have a tendency to be selfish, our minds have a tendency to be self-centered, our minds have a tendency to be, oh, woe is me, instead of thinking on the things that will really help us. So Lord, help us towards that end. May Jesus Christ receive the glory. If there be anyone here today that doesn't know Christ as Savior, they can know happiness, they can know fleeting happiness. They can know a sense of contentment, but what they cannot know is the peace of God, which passes all understanding. And Lord, I pray that you would grant to that by an encounter with yourself what you did for the Apostle Paul, 
not with lightning, not with dramatics, but by a change of heart, a still small voice of the Holy Spirit, changing a heart and bringing a person to Christ. We call it conversion. We call it salvation. Lord, would you do that to the glory of yourself? And we would give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.